Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this show on Friday, January 21st, 2022. And man, Drew, I hate it when a weekend's like this. I mean, we lost two giants today. The singer Meatloaf, who died at the age of 74, and comic Louis Anderson, who passed away from cancer at the age of 68. Were you a fan of Louis' stand-up at all? or? Um, yeah, you know, this tells you sort of when I grew up, but one of the big things for me, besides, of course, the animated show, was mm-hmm. his appearance in the very first episode of the Jim Henson Hour. Oh, jeez. Which yeah. I don't know if you remember that, but he did that great My Dinner with Godzilla, where he's on a <laughs> date with, with Godzilla. <laughs> I forgot so about great. that. Oh, yeah. now I got to go back and look. It's on YouTube. So, yeah. All right. I, I will definitely chase it. But yeah, you mentioned uh, the animated show Life with Louis uh, ran on Fox 30 episodes from December of 1994 through March of 1998. Anderson actually voiced the title character in the show, likewise, his dad. On the other hand, we're talking meatloaf. I can't help but think you did that wonderful story for Collider in August of 2020, where you did sort of a a great pop the hood of how Disney's animated uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame came together. And everyone knows that that Tom Hulse eventually voiced the title character of that movie. But but you, you, you had that great story about who they went to first. Yeah, I mean, it seems like Meatloaf was really in contention for the part. Obviously, they talked to Mandy Patinkin, and that was also that was a big disaster. Uh-huh. But um, I think that would have been a great casting decision. I mean, he he performed out there for them a few times. And... See, now that kills me. All right, you know, all yeah. day long I've been hearing two out of three ain't bad and the Meatloaf songbook, and it's just you know somewhere somebody's yeah. got a recording. <laughs> Of meatloaf doing out there. Yeah. Because they had to go back to the studio from that meeting with something to show the other folks. So it's like, where is that? Yeah. It also makes me long for a Jim Steinman meatloaf Disney musical. We love love Alan Menken, but. Just today on Good Morning America, they had Lin-Manuel Miranda on there sort of deconstructing we don't talk about Bruno. And if it were this management team at this time and a Meatloaf and a Gene Steinman were coming through the door, absolutely. Sure. Let's do this. Right. Speaking of, of Hunchback, a friend of the show, Josh Gad, he's still out there trying to get his live action version of Disney's Hunchback produced. Be kind of interesting to hear Josh's take on, on out there, too. Yeah, I was on the phone with Alan Minkin a couple of weeks ago, but mm-hmm. he did not. T- I think he we- said it's still somewhere in the. Yeah, Minkin has so much stuff going on, <laughs> including stuff with our friend Josh Gad. Mm-hmm. We've got uh, Beauty and the Beast coming up. Yeah, you, the li- you saw uh, the casting, time. right? I did. I did. So you have Fra Free, the gentleman who played Kazi, Kingpin's loyal lieutenant from Hawkeye. Jelani Aladdin, who played Kristoff in the original version of Frozen. I think it was the summer before last when they did that world premiere staging. Yeah, of the, the in the music. park, right? Yeah, for, for yeah. Hercules. And he played the title role. And you get Roger Bart played Hades. And it's like, uh, I want to see this. But anyway, uh, I, I really am behind on my, you know, I guess Little Town's supposed to start shooting this spring. 
but that'll be for Disney Plus. And didn't he, uh, Josh, just have a show debut on Peacock last week, Wolf Like Me? Or yeah, it's great. It's is really, it? really great. Yeah. Okay. Not not for all, not for the kids, but okay. it's, yeah, it's it's really wonderful. We went through the whole thing in two nights. Uh, so all right, it's, it's awesome. I, and also, did you see the announcement this week about Central Park? Central Park has been renewed for a third season, but that was in March of last year. And season two began in June of last year, right? So I think that this upcoming one is yeah. actually the beginning of season two. <laughs> okay, so I think brand new episodes debuting March fourth, but we we don't know. <laughs> no, you know what? You're yeah. It's saying it is. It was season two. Was last year. So this, but I is guess it, this is it, the beginning of season. See, that's, that's the problem. We we live in this world where they say <laughs> it's a season, you know, but again, then yeah. you cut the season, you know, the seasons worth of shows in half, and it's like, oh, this is, you know, a half of season two, and this is the next half of season two. So, all right, well, uh, hopefully Josh will straighten this out. Yes. Earlier today, Paramount Pictures and, and Skydance announced that due to the pandemic, the release dates of, of Mission Impossible 7 and Mission Impossible 8 pushed off yet again? Seven was initially supposed to debut this year on September 30th. It's now been pushed off to July 14th, 2023. And eight's been pushed from July 7th, 2023 to June 28th, 2024. With a July 14th release date and a June 28th release date, that says to me that a studio knows that they have a summer blockbuster, so they, they've remained confident in these movies, right? Yeah, for sure. I think it's just a, a scheduling thing mm-hmm. and COVID screwing everything up. So. Yeah, but Cruz's other film for Paramount, the Top Gun sequel, Maverick, that's standing firm with a May 27th release date, right? That is correct. I, I, I mean, as far as I know, yeah. I mean, I think that one kind of has to come out. I think that... If anything, seven and eight have the benefit of no marketing materials haven't gone having gone out, and there's this real problem with marketing feeling stale, and um, yeah. you know if you don't have any marketing out there, you can shuffle it around all you want. But if you, I mean, we've literally been watching Top Gun stuff for <laughs> eighteen months, so nobody promotes quite as well as Mr. Cruz. So yes. um, it'll be. Be interesting to see him out there in the next couple of months, thumping the tub for Top Gun Maverick. Speaking of news, the news portion of Fine Tuning is brought to you by Storybook Destination, trusted travel partner of the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. For a worry-free travel experience, please book online at storybookdestinations.com. Last week, we were talking about how really the metrics for success with animated features have, have changed quite a bit just over the past 22, 23 months of the pandemic. And did you see that, uh, the, the Nielsen report about how Luca was the most streamed movie for 2021? I just saw it on Twitter. Yeah. I cannot believe this number. Uh, 10.6 billion views. And you're wondering why Turning Red is going directly to Disney+. Plus. There mean. we go. There we go. Though what fascinated me was the number two film on this list, Moana. Oh, wow. Moana was released to theaters back in November of 2016. That's over five years ago now. It took second place on Nielsen's list 
for the most streamed movies of 2021. And this is the second year in a row, Drew, that Moana was taken this spot on Nielsen's list. And then right behind that was Disney's Ray and the Last Dragon, which had 8.3 billion views. Of the top 10 slots on Nielsen's list of most streamed movies of 2021, Seven of those spots were full-length animated features. Luca, Moana, and Ray and the Last Dragon, we just talked about. Frozen 2, the original Frozen, Soul, and I know this will make you happy, Mitchells versus the Machines. Oh, great. Yeah, so nice that that got that recognition. You know the people that feature animation at Disney have to be happy seeing where Moana placed on that list, given the announcement today about the Moana long-form series. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that this is going to be, you know, one of the inaugural projects at the the uh, Vancouver studio. Yeah, yeah. David G. Derrick Jr. is the director of the show, and he's of a Samoan background. In fact, he did a lot of the boarding for the first film, Mm-hmm. So that was the thing of like, geez, we have to have David back on on with this. In fact, he's partnering with Osnet Schurer, who produced the original Moana movie. And so the two of them are working together on this long form, which supposedly got wall-to-wall music, great graphics and that sort of thing. But but as you mentioned, this is the first thing that the, the Vancouver studio is going to tackle. Do you think they're, they're going to make that 2023 delivery date for Disney Plus or... I mean, is the studio? Do they have a building? I mean, that's that's kind of interesting. I'm I'm thinking about it's like you know they've got to get the studio out of the ground. And you know, you know, David is also a a veteran of one of our favorite animated movies of the past few years, The Rise of the Guardians. The oh great no, really? Yeah. Oh. So a lot of talent this guy has. Okay. And, yeah. Right. Really looking forward to it. Well, speaking of a talented bunch of that, of course. The guys at Ardman who are working with Netflix. And did you see the, the news that broke about the Chicken Run sequel that yes. they get in the works over there? So, so, okay, we have a title now and a really for real title. Care to share? <laughs> uh, yes, this is Chicken Run Dawn of the Nugget, which is a very awkward title. I think Chicken Run 2 might have just done the job. but From the bullet point take on it, they're picking up the story right where Chicken Run left off. Do you care to handle the story description or shall I? Oh, sure. Uh, Set shortly after the death-defying escape from Tweety's farm in the original film, Chicken Run Dawn of the Nugget sees Ginger having finally found her dream, a peaceful island sanctuary for the whole flock, far from the dangers of the human world. When she and Rocky hatch a little girl named Molly, Ginger's happy ending seems complete. But back on the mainland, the whole of chicken kind faces a new and terrible threat. For Ginger and her team, even if it means putting their own hard-won freedom at risk, this time they're breaking in. What do you think about that? Again, it's Ardman. I'm pretty much on board just to see what those guys do. Um, what do we make of who is now replacing uh, Mr. Gibson as the voice of, of Rocky the Rooster? I mean, another warrior in Christ's army, Zachary Levi, <laughs> is replacing him. I don't know if that's much of an upgrade. It's probably slightly more innocuous, but mm-hmm. obviously I'm very excited about Tanny Newton taking mm-hmm. over as Ginger. Mm-hmm. I think that's great. And obviously we have a new 
The daughter is being played by Game of Thrones star Bella Ramsey. Was she the little queen from Game of Thrones? Is that I, who this is? I want to say yes. So that, okay. that, that suggests an interesting attitude for the daughter. Yes. Uh, but, but the other thing that got buried in all of this info was that Netflix is also going to get a, a, get a from Ardman the first Wallace and Gromit movie. Brand new Wallace and Gromit movie since 2008's A, a Matter of Loaf and Death. Well, this is actually the first. This is a feature length sequel. Really? So this wow. is actually a sequel to Curse of the Were Rabbit from back in two thousand five. Oh wow! Yeah, I didn't yeah. know that. Okay. Yeah, so this is a feature. Yeah, I, I had no idea this was even mm-hmm. on the table, but it's supposed to be out in twenty twenty four. So Jeez. not super far away. Did you catch the sort of setup for it that instead of Wallace is invented instead of a smartphone, a a smart gnome. Yes. Well, I always wonder, you know, they always sort of tackle a different genre. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of wondering what this one is going to be. Yeah. But I mean, all, the other thing we have to talk about is, you know, in 2017, mm-hmm. Peter Salas passed away at the tender age of 96. So, yeah. I, you know, we'll have a new Wallace for the first time ever, yeah. which is going to be very interesting. For me, the gold standard still for these films is The Wrong Trousers. That one. Yes. Just for the train sequence alone. Um, and of course, we were talking about Garden Gnome. Speaking of, of statuary, though, and I apologize, Drew, I did this to you last week. I sent you to an auction house to look at a catalog, and, oh, and then you had to decide, well, do I actually make the rent payment? <laughs> um, because this one, uh, Heritage, is holding it on February 4th and 7th. This is an animation art signature sale. And what the one that's dangerous about this for you and I is, they're offering over 50 maquettes from animation history from, from Pixar and Disney. When you were working at the company, and I'm sure when they would be walking you through, you know, we're working on this film, we're working on that film, that sort of thing. Do you remember when they'd bring the maquettes through and very clearly on the bottom, it would be stamped that returned to the, uh, I, I guess it would be the ARL, wouldn't it? Or, or oh, yeah, from be? the library. Yeah, yeah. I mean. Yeah, even because they would be with the with the cells and mm. everything. And sometimes they're in the I would always I, one sort of underrated library at Disney was mm-hmm. the consumer products library. And oh. I would love that because you could see these giant books of making sure everything is on model for mm-hmm. the toys and everything like that. And a lot of times there would be maquettes in there as well. But even. You know me, I'm always talking to these guys for an article or something, and every time I see a maquette, yeah. <laughs> I'm always like, um, should you have that? <laughs> you know? Like, yeah, well, and that's the thing. From the 40s on forward, they literally had stamped on the bottom return of the character model department, but they still wandered out of the building. And in this case, at this auction, uh, there's stuff from the 40s. I mean, they've got... Uh, Pinocchio, Jiminy Cricket. I, the thing that, that fascinates me, they've got early, early Captain Hook from the aborted version of the Dave Hall version of Peter Pan they were going to do. Likewise, the Siamese cat from Lady and the Tramp before that the tramp was part of this story. Right. You know which one I love that I'm looking at right now, Jim, is... Sir Giles from The Reluctant oh, Dragon, which is one of my no. favorite, favorite shorts. And I love, I mean, it's just his head. It's so cool. Mm-hmm. No, oh, no, my we'll, God. 
Basil of Baker Street, Jim. Why? Why? Why are you telling me about this? I'm sorry. I get it. You know, to see this thing, I'm be. I'm trying to be strong. I I will go. I'll you know. I'll get the catalog. I get. I can look at it from afar. But I mean, but it's also worth noting that it's not just the stuff from the '40s. They've got stuff from you know the great Disney second golden age. There's a Lumiere and Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. There's a Jafar from Aladdin. Who, you know, when I saw that and Andreas Dases. You know, office. It's, it's like, you know, just trying to figure out: can I make Andreas look away, and you know, and, and stuff this into my boy? But Scar from Lion King, and and, and by the way, there's a, there's a Dory from Pixar that's actually signed by Ellen DeGeneres. So maybe that's how it got out of the building. It's like, well, yeah, maybe you don't want that in your house, Jim. I think there might be some bad bad yeah. mojo <laughs> there, but. I mean, there, there's bidding going on right now already uh, for a lot of this stuff. The Mr. Incredible maquette is already at like 4,000, I want to say. Oh, um, my God. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Signed by Brad Bird. It is, oh, I'm sorry, Jim. It is uh, $7,250. So. Uh, okay. All right. I'm, I'm beginning to think my distracting Andreas <laughs> – you know, I think that's a more viable option at this <laughs> I'm point. Really thinking the same thing. Oh, by the way, but before I forget, you teased on last week's show that the Cuphead trailer was coming out this week, and and it did bow. I did get to see it, and man, you were not wrong. That thing looks amazing, right? When you think about doing that Fleischer style animation, and I, you know, and the whole rubber hose thing, and they. They just live in that world. I mean, it all looks like it could have been done in the 30s, from the animation style to the color palette. To yeah. Now, have you seen any actual episodes yet, or just the, the trailer? No, I haven't yet. I just got the new Kid Cosmic episodes, so mm. I'm about to devour those uh, today. But yeah, I haven't gotten any any yet. But I will push on that, because I think it looks amazing. And, you know, I always love bringing up Mercury Filmworks, and this is—I don't know. This is some of their stuff. This is right. This is crazy. It, 2022 quality, but a beautiful revisiting of the, the 30s style animation. Oh, oh, oh speaking of, of revisiting, on last week's show, I expressed the wish that Mike Judd would revisit a King of the Hill, and the Hollywood Reporter just just revealed that you know, 12 years after the last episode aired. It's being revived. Uh, not only that, Greg Daniels and, and Mike Judd are coming back to oversee the show. So, okay, so Universe, if you're wishing, I, I would now like a winning lottery ticket. Just enough to cover these Peter Ellenshaw matte paintings. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. Um, I hate you. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> On the other hand, the two of us love Paul Ruddish and the work that he does with the wonderful world of Mickey Mouse. And did you you see the trailer for? I guess this is what they're doing with season two. This these four specials that key off of the seasons. Yes, and and as far as I know, mm-hmm. and again, we are talking about this is just perfect, Jim, because this is more wonderful animation from from Mercury mm-hmm. Filmworks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're longer. I don't know how long exactly because. The original shorts were super short, and then the wonderful, the one wonderful world of Mickey Mouse were about what seven to nine minutes. Seven to each. nine, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if these are like twenty minutes or what. Um, and they have not set a release schedule for these either. They're just 
one each season. So the first mm-hmm. one is February 18th. Did you there see how little is on Disney Plus, by the way, in February? <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> I, I, again, I, I I loved your comment on, you know, February on Disney Plus. The, the, the lonely tumbleweed <laughs> rolling across the road. God. Yeah. Yeah, we are so off that Christmas card list. Yeah, well, I mean, it's like, you know, I usually do like a top things to watch on these streaming platforms every month, and I couldn't do one for Disney Plus because there was so little (sighs) on it. But, you know. But that won't be the case in the future because, again, we just got the This Big City Greens announcement. By the way, we we were just talking about February 18th with the the wonderful Winter of Mickey Mouse uh, a couple days earlier than that. We get season three of Big City Greens, which debuts on February 12th. But the mouse really is is very high on Big City Greens, which, which evidently is the highest rated animated series the Disney Channel has had in four years. So out ahead of season three premiere, Disney Channel has already renewed for a fourth season. Not only that, they placed an order for a Big City Green Disney Channel original movie, a musical adventure, that will air on cable and Disney Plus in 2023. So yeah, you just have to wait till 2023 for the good stuff, folks. All right. Well, and I mean, I- it's very interesting that they're they're so into Big City Green, and they seemed sort of ambivalent about Owl House and hmm. Amphibia and things like that. I just wonder why. I mean, certainly they're. Let's be honest. Big City Greens is probably the least kind of a f- boundary pushing in terms of representation and stuff. So. That could win. I wonder. Hmm. Yeah. It's not going to win any GLAAD awards. Let's just say that. But (laughs) Okay. Well, would you say Craig of the Creek isn't close? I think so. I mean, we we haven't seen a a show that's built around, you know, a little black kid that Mm -hmm. has this kind of popularity. Because that had a bunch of news, too, this week, right? It did. It did. Fourth season started just this past week, January 17th on Cartoon Network. Same episodes will be available to HBO Max subscribers starting at February 17th, but also renewed for a fifth season, getting a spinoff, Jessica's Big Little World, based on Craig's little sister Jessica, in a refrain that will sound very familiar. There is a Craig of the Creek movie. Okay. Which will also be debuting in 2023. Have you watched the Little Bears or whatever that is. The- I was a fan of the Bear 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 show before. So, yes, the three of them traveling in their cardboard box. Yes, it They're has so its cute. charts. Yeah, they are. Yeah. They are. Speaking of which, did you see that in the CNN headquarters building, the, the place where the um, – oh, remember the indoor theme park for Sid Mardi Gras plays? Oh, yes. Uh, that yeah. building. Yeah, yeah, in Atlanta, right? Right. Okay. Well, on the ground floor – there was a Cartoon Network merch store, and obviously with the pandemic shutting down everything, no one's going in the shop in the store, and the store, the store just recently closed. But somebody commented, you know, on the day that it had its last day of operation, outside of the store, they had the, this great statue of the three bears standing on top of one another. And again, it was another Andreas Deja distract them, stick it in a bag moment. It's like, you know, right? can I grab this 15-foot-tall statue and take it home? <laughs> So that's, I think we covered most of the animation-related news, except for the, the thing that broke about the, the live-action Aristocats, which made me think of the time when 
when the original hand-drawn version of the Aristocrats almost didn't get made because Walt's brother Roy decided they wanted to shut down feature animation after production of Jungle Book was completed. And why didn't that happen? Uh, Drew and I will reveal that in the second half of today's show. Before we talk about Disney's Aristocat 3, Drew, um, Drew, you have two pieces of Paramount-related uh, news to share. Let's start with the Ninja Turtle movie. Yeah, the Ninja Turtle, the animated Ninja Turtle movie is, now has a date of August 4th, 2023, which has, you know, I think it moved up a week. Mm-hmm. And there is a Transformers animated film that's been dated for July 19th, 2024. Mm-hmm. And the... Ninja Turtles movie is the one that is being directed by Mitchells vs. the Machines co-director Jeff Rowe. Mm-hmm. The last time I saw him, he looked very <laughs> stressed out, and they are working hard on this Ninja Turtle movie as we speak, Jim. And the Transformers movie, I think, maybe, is the Josh Cooley movie that ILM is doing the animation for. Mm-hmm. So let's cross our fingers for that one because we need a, we need a new Josh Cooley Absolutely. movie in our lives. Absolutely. You also noticed that we have some news in regard to Blazing Samurai. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, it is going to come out this summer mm-hmm. via Paramount. So, you know, we, we lost Mission Impossible and we, we gained Blazing Samurai, um, yeah. which, it, I, you know, nobody talks about how it's a Far East remake of of Blazing Saddles, mm-hmm. um, which is insane. But uh, it's being led by Michael Sarah, Samuel Jackson is in it, Ricky Gervais, Mel Brooks, and it is being directed, you might want to note, Jim, by mm-hmm. our friend Rob Minkoff and Mark Klostheiser. So wow. we have been... How we, did this get bias? Holy cow, really? It's Eight. been in production for, I feel like, 800 years. So I I think we are we are allowed to skip some developments. But, I mean, that's, okay. a, that's a pretty big get, you know, so. All right. Well, now I have a reason to go back to the movie theater. Blazing Samurai. Holy cow. I did not know this was out there. Yeah. This summer. Okay. And now to pivot to this live action uh, Aristocats that Disney has in development. Again, this is a remake of Disney's December 1970 release. So far, the talk that's out there, nobody's saying theatrical, nobody's saying Disney+. Plus. They're just talking about who's involved with it. And we've got Will Gluck, who directed Peter Rabbit, and it's a sequel from last year, Peter Rabbit, The Runaway. Have you watched those movies? They're actually not bad. They're great. They're yeah. great. Yeah. yeah, I think they're great. Yeah. Well, anyway. and 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 more to the point, uh, given that you're the guy who wrote the the wonderful making of book for Pixar's Onward, I was intrigued that Keith uh, Brunin is you know doing the script for this thing, and uh, all the people are willing to say so far is that it might look similar to that Lady and the Tramp redo that that wasn't that one of the very first things that debuted on Disney Plus. Yeah, I think it was a launch title. Yeah. It's not really a surprise that Disney's looking to go the live action route with this particular IP. I, I think you and I on an earlier episode of Fine Tuning talked at length about how the Aristocats, what, it started off life as what, a two-part episode or, or it was in development to be a two-part episode on The Wonderful World of Color? Is, am I getting yeah. that right? But then that stalled for some reason and then... 
Ken Anderson does a couple of concept paintings, sort of exploring the idea of, well, what if we did this as an animated feature? And he takes those to Walt in the fall of 66, and Walt likes what he sees, and it's supposedly one of the last things he okayed before he died. We would say that would be a dim green light, I think, is what he's given. A blinking <laughs> okay. green light, maybe. Okay, yeah. okay. blinking green light. Okay, so yeah. uh, Drew and I are sharing that story with you because I, I want to talk about what I just read. In volume 17 of Walt's People, this is a, a great series of books edited by D.D.A. Gez. He's the, the gentleman behind, they, they drew what they please, that wonderful series of concept art books. I, I think there's six of those, right? Yeah, we had him on the show, remember? We did, we did. But I'm also a, a fan of the Waltz People books. There were 25 of them so far. And one of my goals for 2022 is to fill out my collection. In fact, I just got started backwards with 25 and I'm, I'm, I'm up to 15. I, I, when we complete tonight, I'm going to order 14. And what's particularly interesting about volume 17 is it includes a transcript of an interview that Bob Thomas did with Bill Anderson. Now, he's a longtime producer at Disney. Again, I think I want to say his first big credit at the studio was the original Swiss Family Robinson movie. Bill also served on Disney's board of directors for 24 years. So this was a guy definitely in the mix at Disney and, and knew what was what. Bob Thomas, on the other hand, was a writer for the AP for 44 years, wrote 30 different show business biographies, but the ones that would interest the folks that pay attention to fine tuning, he wrote the Walt Disney and American Original, the, the authorized biography, which was published back in 1976. He followed that uh, with building a company, Roy O. Disney, and the creation of an entertainment empire, which was published in 1998. Now, these were authorized books, which meant that in order to get the access, and Bob Thomas interviewed everybody at the company for, for both of these books. But at the same time, with access meant your book could only be published with Disney's approval. And they had to sign off with a manuscript, which meant in a lot of times stories, really great stories didn't make it into the book because they didn't necessarily put the, the company in the best light or individuals who work in the company in the best light. So this is a f- totally foreign concept to me, Jim, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so um, Bob Thomas dies in March of 2014 at the age of 92. The Thomas estate makes a lot of Bob's unedited, unpublished interviews available for Didier to use in his Waltz People book. And as the, the back cover of Volume 17 hypes, Bill Anderson shoots from the hip with his candid comments about Walt and Roy Disney, Disney artists and animators, and how close the studio came to disbanding feature animation after Walt's death. So what we're about to do here is that I've pulled an edited version of this transcript out of uh, Didier's book, and Drew's going to read Bob's questions, and I'm going to follow with Bill's answers, and we're going to learn a little bit about what it was like uh, right after Walt died. So let's start with the first question, Drew. All right. Do you remember the day that Walt died? Yes. Did you know that he was ill? Yes. I'm the first one he told he had something on his lung. Really? Before he told Roy or anybody. How did he say it? We were having a drink. In his office? 
in his office. I knew he'd been in the hospital or to the doctor. He said, they found a spot on my lung. I said, oh, my God. And he said, don't worry now. I'm going to whip it. They found it. They're going to go in, take a biopsy, and so forth. He told Roy after that? Oh, sure. But he was positive about it. What else could he do? He, he never said much after that. He didn't say who should do anything. He expected his organization to function, and I guess the point was, you will sink or swim. He never said Roy will be in charge or anything. He never discussed it. Not with me. Okay, so we now jump ahead a little bit in the interview, and Bill continues. Roy called me, and he said that he and Mrs. Disney had gone over it, and they would like me to continue production. Of course, there were a lot of people in the studio who had different ideas of what should be done. I had a meeting with Roy. Patty, Roy's longtime secretary, called me down. It was the only meeting I had with Roy other than on the telephone when he asked me to take over production. He said, Bill, when you finish the picture we're working on, I want you to close up feature animation. I haven't told that many people that. I said, oh, Roy, that's the most valuable thing we have. He said, no one could make animated feature pictures but Walt. I want to close feature animation. I said, I won't do that unless you write me a memorandum. He just looked at me. I said, I couldn't do what you're asking me to do. You have to write it because I don't think people will understand it. We also had an idea what our next animated feature would be, and, and Walt had, had been on it roughly. It, he didn't approve it, but he did approve it as a project. Uh, which one was that? The Jungle Book was finished. I'm, I'm trying to think of the next one after Jungle Book, and he, he literally can't remember the name of the Aristocats. So what did Roy say after you said that? I left, and I never heard from him again. The last two or three animated features were so successful, I never heard from him again. I don't know if he talked to Card, that's Card Walker. I never heard from Card on it, or Don, uh, that's Don Tatum. Never heard from Don. I did tell Ron, in this case, Ron is Ron Miller, Walt's son-in-law. And Ron said, Roy didn't have any right to do that. I said, that's beside the point. I, I'm just telling you this because you're in charge of feature animation now. Anyway... I stayed in charge, and we went ahead. I told Roy, I'll go ahead until I hear from you. And I never received a memorandum. He never discussed it with me, and he never talked to me after that. He might have been acting out of emotion. He might have been. As a misguided tribute to Walt. I just think he was a little panicky. I, I think Roy was really kind of beside himself about the loss of Walt in the production. I, I know I was. I, I know we all were. But no one was discouraged. The key people in animation, there was only a small group of those, the, the nine old men, the, they were the key people. And Wooly Ritherman was a rock of Gibraltar. And after that, he took over and did such a, a wonderful job of working with me and those other animators and pulling together those next couple of pictures together. They gave him that god-awful picture to do, that cartoon picture of the ugly people. I never even bothered to see it. I knew it was god-awful. The Black Cauldron? Yeah, the Black Cauldron just got awful. I tried to talk to Ron. I said, Ron, you got nothing here. There's nothing here. Even the one about the dog and the wolf. <laughs> Again, Bill's referring to the fox and the hound. Uh, Wooly tried to interject some, some entertainment. I said to Wooly, it's like, God, this needs entertainment in it. And he, he tried to interject. They moved him out as producer. I, anyway, Anderson finishes up by saying that 
Aristocats came out and made a profit its first time, uh, just like 101 Dalmatians, which, which I think was one of the more entertaining move, uh, pictures we ever made. It was a profitable picture its first time out, which Snow White was about the only one that was. Quick editor's note as we finish up here, folks. The Hollywood Reporter, a, a, as part of its story about the live-action Aristocats that's being developed, uh, mentions that the Aristocats made $191 million in its original release, which... I think this is a typo because a film cost $4 million to make, uh, sold 10.1 million tickets in North America, additional nine overseas. So I, I think, again, somebody uh, editing missed a, a period that it wasn't $91 million on original release. It was 19.1. But on the other hand, if you factor in uh, all of its theatrical releases, uh, likewise VHS, DVD, Blu-ray, uh, the licensing... This IP has done quite well by the company. I, I'm, I'm told uh, it's earned Disney over a quarter of a billion dollars, but that's over the past 52 years or nearly 52 years, which makes me wonder, Drew, how much do you think Mission Impossible has made for Paramount since the TV series debuted in September of 66? Well, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, there's been... There's been one series revival in 88 mm -hmm. uh, that didn't last very long, but then you've got, you know, six of the most successful kind of franchise movies. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good amount. It, there's no there's no Tom Cruise plush like there is for Marie. So, I, <laughs> you know, there's no, there's no merchandising arm, really. But, you know. But, again, I just I, – I guess what just sort of startled me was to see – the first film comes out May of 1996, so, so almost 30 years to the day from the, when the yeah. TV show dropped. And, in fact, I've got a copy of A History of Desilu, uh, and they, they were talking right. about they got Mission Impossible up and running, and that w wasn't that when Desilu sold out to Paramount? Or? Yeah, the sort of production history of the show is really interesting too. The whole thing with Bruce Geller being fired um, after a couple of seasons and yeah, it's, it's interesting, but yeah, it was owned by Desilu and I think the TV rights are owned by a separate company or something. It's very complicated, but you know, all that matters is that Mr. Cruz keeps on running. That's as, <laughs> as I'm concerned. There You'll appreciate we, we talked to a great production designer today that who you will know and love jim bissell oh no yeah he did rocketeer and et amongst other things and did ghost protocol Jeez. and rogue nation and you know what's funny is that he was one of the first people on board a little movie that we've talked about a number of times jim 1906 <laughs> and he worked he said he worked on it for a, over a year and a half at pixar which is very interesting all right. Seriously, folks, I, I know we talk about this on every show, but do not make the mistake of thinking, okay, Light the Fuse is just about the Mission Impossible movies. It's not. It's when Drew and Charles bring somebody on the show to talk, they talk about their entire career, and you get behind-the-scenes stories on, on a startling number of films. And, you know, uh, and, and, and again, I love how you and Charles – 
really walk folks through their entire career, but do bring it back to, of course, the Mission Impossible franchise. But uh, yeah, but no, oh, it's just it's a re- it's going to be a great couple of episodes. Jim, he is like a legend, as we we've said, and mm-hmm. he has great stories about Brad Bird and Macquarie, and it's just really. Really, really interesting. We had a, a blast talking to him. So that'll be that'll be maybe a month or six weeks down the road. But it's um, it's great. It's really, really great. Killer, killer, killer. Okay. Well, well again, folks, seriously, uh, you know, if you could uh, do Drew and I a favor, uh, if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and not only rate what you're listening to tonight, but fine tuning, but also. Light the fuse. That would be very helpful. If, uh, you know, on the other hand, you really, really, really uh, want to help out here. If you want to go to Bandcamp and subscribe, that would be amazingly helpful. Okay, I think that's going to do it for this week, which virtually guarantees as soon as Drew and I, uh, you know, stop recording this, some other giant piece of animation news will break. But if that's the case, we will just talk about it on next week's show. So uh, thanks for listening and good night. <laughs>